In our study of Romans, we're looking at Romans chapter 3 today, uh, beginning with verse 21. Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 21. It's found on page 1750 in the Bibles. 1750. Let's pray together. God, as we come to your word, we know that we come as people who desperately need the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to hear this good news this morning. And in hearing, help us to believe, and in believing, help us to live always for him. We pray this as your loved children. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known, to which the law and prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Old-time Westerns used to have a standard theme. There were good guys and bad guys, and usually, toward the end of the show, the bad guys would have an upper hand on the good guys. The good guys were in a jam from which it seemed they were not likely to be freed. And then suddenly, at the last minute, the cavalry or a hero would show up to save the day, and the good guys would win reprieve. Well, that's where we're at in Romans. The story was proceeding down a dismal path. It appeared as if all hope was lost. But then suddenly, we're told of something that happens which changes everything. But now, says Paul. Someone once said, there are no more wonderful words in all of Scripture than these two words. But now. God's faithfulness is on full display. Despite our sin, God acts. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. God keeps His covenant to put the world right. God's covenant faithfulness, His justice, demands that God be true to His promises. But there's a dilemma. The whole human race has turned away from God. Remember what Paul said earlier, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The story is tragic. God, the creator of the world, the one who declared over this creation that everything was good, faces humanity in rebellion. Humans made in God's image lost the glory of being fellow rulers. Instead of, because of sin, humanity lost that created glory that God instilled. Humanity has become filled with wickedness. 
Of course, God made promises to deal with this promise. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, tells us that God called Abraham and Sarah, and through them and their children, God would undo the problem caused by the sin of Adam and Eve. God planned to raise up a nation, Israel, to deal with human wickedness. Israel would be a shining light that would lead the rest of the world to get God's creation project back on track. But the problem gets worse. The chosen people of God are no different. God wasn't confronted with a situation in which some people behaved badly and others behaved well. I mean, that would be easy to deal with. Get rid of the bad and preserve the good. But it's not that simple. Israel was called to help resolve the problem, but Israel proved to be part of the problem. So what's God to do? Must God just admit he made a gigantic blunder, destroy the whole business? Should God go back on the promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? Or should God favor Israel even though she doesn't deserve it? I mean, after all, God promised But if God were to rescue this, his covenant people, despite their guilt, would he then be showing favoritism? What's God supposed to do? Well, this much is sure. Humanity is powerless to save themselves. Not only do we sin, power, Paul made clear in a chapter earlier, we're under the power of sin. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. We're held captive by sin with a a capital S. Not just our sins. Sins are just a series of misdeeds that you can keep a a running total of. Uh, And you can congratulate yourself if you haven't committed very many. No murder. Check. No stealing. Check. Not committing adultery. Check. But sins alone don't make us powerless. Sin is not the the sum total of our individual transgressions. Sin is our fundamental condition. It's the disease we all have. Our hearts are dislocated. One preacher notes, The world has been thrown violently off course by an alien power hostile to God, and paradoxically, Each of us is responsible for his own part in the resulting mess. Sin is the power that enslaves us, and sin is that for which we are culpable. You see, because of sin, we are each individually and all of us collectively deserving of the judgment of God. Whether we know it or not, whether we feel it or not, we're guilty. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are fallen creatures in bondage to a power far greater than we are. In his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, C.S. Lewis tells us of Edmund. Because of his selfishness and greed, Edmund falls into the hands of the White Witch, the Queen of Narnia. She's wicked, and she wields tremendous power. She captivates Edmund with Turkish delight, a candy that he craves more and more. Once under her spell, Edmund makes a mess of everything. 
Uh, the witch learns that Edmund has a brother and two sisters, and she plans to use Edmund to subvert them all. And Edmund willingly goes along with her plan. However, the witch's plot begins to unravel. Aslan, the lion, the god character in Lewis's book, arrives on the scene. And through the efforts of Aslan and his siblings, Edmund is rescued. But the witch still has a claim on him because he has been involved in treachery. And so he remains in bondage. By the deep magic, we're told, the witch is entitled to put Edmund to death because he's a traitor. Even Aslan, for all his great power, would be unable to rescue Edmund. Except for this. There's a deeper magic. If someone dies willingly for someone else, this deeper magic says, if they take on the person's punishment, then the accused can go free. So Aslan gives himself to the witch, allowing her to execute him instead of Edmund. But now, says Paul, in a single stroke, God remains true to the covenant, chooses to put the world right, and solves the dilemma of human sin especially the failure of his chosen people. This righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. The gospel of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, reveals the answer. God brings his covenant justice to light in Jesus. Jesus is the faithful Israelite. Being faithful to the point of death, Jesus, the Messiah, unveils the way one, the, one, the way the one true God is also true to His covenant. It isn't the solution the world expected. But Jesus offers God the faithful obedience which Israel should have offered, but failed to. Israel was unfaithful to her commission, but God remains faithful. The faithfulness of Jesus, the Messiah, brings sinners into the covenant family. And suddenly, the vocation of Israel is caught up into Jesus. Jesus, who was faithful to the divine plan for salvation, allows all to believe and to be rescued in Him. When we hear the words, but now, when we should lift up our heads, because we don't have to hang them in shame. These two words, but now, signal the arrival of the gospel. And when the gospel touches the lives of those who believe, life is changed. By the death of Jesus Christ, those who believe meet the grace of God. We all have sinned. We all have fallen short of God's great glory. But in Jesus Christ, all are justified freely by His grace. Paul loves that word. He loves the word grace. By it, he stresses that all that God does on our behalf is done freely, without any compulsion. Grace is God's very nature. There's no requirement that God has to fulfill. Nothing we do requires God to make us right. Everything we receive from God in Christ is a pure gift. Grace. It's not the way our world works. We think people need to be successful, talented, attractive to be worthy. 
Steve Jobs dropped out of college to start a company called Apple. He he was compared to Thomas Edison and Henry Ford, a visionary genius. Even though he was fired from his job at age 30, he went on to create a legacy that includes Mac computers, Pixar studios, iPhone, iTunes, iPad. Steve Jobs changed the way that we think about computers and phones and music and movies and more. He made technology cool and intuitive, elegant and easy to use. When Steve Jobs died, the New Yorker had a cartoon cover tribute to him. St. Peter met him at the purely pearly gates, not checking out the book of life, but the iPad of life. Steve Jobs revolutionized our world, and it all started in his parents' garage. But for all of his success... It wasn't enough. See, Steve Jobs is no different from any other person. He was a human being in need of God's grace. Grace is God's choice to love, forgive, embrace, accept, and help us. There's nothing we can do, no success we can have that makes us worthy of grace. Success, brilliance, talent, beauty, None of these, none of these are bad. God can use all of them for His glory, but none of them, none of them will save you. We are only justified freely by God's grace. Paul goes on here to point out some of the benefits of God's grace. All are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We are redeemed Uh, To redeem something means we pay a price to buy it back. Redemption is one of the the big technical terms that is common in Christianity. In, In the classical biblical picture, we're all enslaved like Israel was in Egypt, but God released Israel from Egypt. God redeemed them. And what God did for Israel, God does in Jesus for the whole world. God provides us Redemption. God provides us rescue from the power of sin. God paid the ultimate price to buy back the world, including humanity. That word, redemption, once referred to buying back a slave from the slave market. But Paul means so much more than this. The death of Jesus is like a a new exodus. The moment when slaves are freed. God has released us from slavery to sin. We stood guilty before the judge. We didn't have a hope in the world. Like slaves bound in servitude to an onerous master. And then God pardons us. More than that, God pardons us and then declares that we're His very own people. We're not only let off, we're given the status of being God's covenant people. We are loved, period. That's what the gems told us earlier. And it's true, says Paul. We gained that status, says Paul, because God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. The idea that Paul has in mind here is that of the priest in the temple presenting showbread on the altar. God puts forth Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. 
The word behind the phrase, sacrifice of atonement, refers to a very special place, a special piece of furniture in the temple. An atonement cover, or mercy seat, was the gold lid that was placed on the Ark of the Covenant. And the place of mercy between the carved angels was where God would meet his people in grace and forgiveness. And he writes helpful here. Instead of the temple and its symbolism, Paul is saying Jesus himself is now the place where, and also the means by which, the God of Israel has met with his people and forgiven their sins. The death of Jesus is the reality that this temple points to. By his blood on the cross, by his death, we meet God's mercy. We receive the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah the prophet's picture of the suffering servant may be in the back of Paul's minds. He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we're healed. That last line in Isaiah, the punishment was on him, also lets us know that we receive forgiveness because God's wrath is directed at Jesus. See, God cares deeply about sin. God's obliged to punish sin. This means that the the place of mercy or the mercy seat points us to a sacrifice that not only purifies God's people from sin, forgives them, but also turns away the wrath of God. God removes the punishment due sin and changes his attitude towards sinners. We should have been the recipients of God's wrath. Instead, the anger of God against sin fell on Jesus, not us. And altogether, this points us to our justification. One author says, justification is what a judge does when he declares innocent the defendant in a trial. See, the idea of justification is that God's judgment meant to occur at the end of time when God would judge the world has occurred now in the middle of time in Jesus. Look what Paul says. God presented Christ to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Justification means that God's future judgment has already been announced. When God raised Jesus from the dead, God announced the verdict of the last day. Justification is not a teaching that shows us how we get into being the people of God. Justification, Justification is God's declaration that you are in. Justification is God's action, God's announcement that we are his own. The remarkable difference justification makes is who we are in God's sight. We don't have to wait to discover who will at the end of time be declared as belonging to God's people. We can know now, already now, God's future has become present in Jesus. And those who believe are already now declared to be one of those who will be vindicated in the future. So all of this is ours 
by faith. Faith in Jesus. Faith in God's action in Jesus. Marking us as God's own people in the present. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Note, please note, our faith does not save us. There's nothing we can do to justify ourselves. Jewish obedience to God's holy law could not justify them. Our faith does not justify us. I mean, it's easy for us to fall prey to the idea that in the Old Testament, God wanted obedience to the law for salvation, but now God's changed the requirements and all God wants is faith. It's only the work of Christ that merits our salvation in both the Old and the New Testaments. We receive the work of Christ by faith. We come to God, as Jeff had us do in the prayer earlier, with empty hands. That's faith. Faith is like a child coming to her mother for something she needs. She comes trusting that her mother will give it to her. Her asking doesn't merit anything. Asking is the way she receives her mother's generosity. Your belief is not the cause of your salvation. I mean, if it was, you could boast in your works. That's the tune Israel and Paul sang. They sang the song of justification by works of the law. Israel was required to keep the Torah, the law that God gave them. They figured that those who keep it will be vindicated or justified as God's people. That God will judge the nations and rescue Israel from their grip. The only way to tell then who would be vindicated in the future is by looking at those who keep the works of the law right now. And of course, the Jews were certain that those who would be marked out in advance to be vindicated in the future would only be Jews. Because they were the only ones who possessed the law. The only, only Jews would have a chance to keep it. And Paul looks at this and he says, that's just boasting. That's just boasting. He says, the gospel rules all of that thinking out. If you sing law to the tune of works, you are out of luck. But law can tell you who in the present is marked out as among God's people, whom God will vindicate in the future. Law can if, says Paul, you sing law to the tune of faith. And T. Wright puts it like this. When people believe this particular message, that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, and trust themselves to the God who has done this, they are assured in the present time that they are part of God's family. That belief doesn't merit anything. We don't earn God's favor by believing. No, faith is simply a sign. It is a sign to us and to all that the gospel has changed us. And in being changed, we keep God's law. Or as the cadet said earlier, we live for Jesus. We become part of what God did in and to and for Jesus by faith. When the gospel is preached, God's spirit and word work in our hearts and lives in us so that we believe. And in our belief, 
that faith becomes a sign that we are a part of Jesus' family. It's the only badge in the present for recognizing who God's new covenant people are. Since there's only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. When Jewish people believe the gospel, God reaffirms them as covenant members on the basis of their faith. When non-Jewish people believe the gospel, God affirms they've come to the covenant family through the exact same faith. That doesn't mean the law of God is worthless. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all, says Paul. No, rather we uphold the law. The law of God isn't abolished. It's fulfilled in a way nobody ever imagined. Pharisees, including Paul, tried to fulfill the law by their works. It was never meant to be. Instead, the law is fulfilled through faith. All of who we are is by faith in Jesus the Messiah. And because we are people of faith, we live God's law in our lives. Now, Paul presented us with a dilemma. Sin is universal. God made promises to Israel, but Israel was part of the failure. So what was God to do? How could God be judge and faithful to his covenant with Israel? How could God deal with evil and rescue helpless people who would call on him in their distress? Paul tells us that in the death of Jesus, God shows himself true. But now, says Paul, but now God is faithful to the covenant he made. But now God is in the right by dealing with everybody's sin. But now God redeems a people for himself in Jesus. But now God in grace makes a way forward for all who believe. The faithfulness of Jesus to the point of dying on the cross reveals to us God's own covenant faithfulness. And all who put their faith in God's actions, all who put their faith in what God has done in Jesus, are justified, vindicated, marked as God's own people right now. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, there's no greater word to us than the but now of your grace. In your grace in Jesus Christ, we come to see that you are loving us. In the grace of Jesus Christ, we come to see that your love for us overcomes all sin and the power of sin. We come to see that your grace allows us now, in faith, to live for Jesus. Your grace. There is nothing greater than your grace. 
And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.